I want to start with who is Moji Karimi because I looked at your Instagram bio and it says dad, dog, husband, entrepreneur, hustler, foodie, rage and Cajun, half virgin, half alien. Can you speak <laughs> to that a little bit? I forgot about that. I had all those things out there. <laughs> Can you speak to that a little bit? Give us some insights into your background experiences and the journey that's got you to where you are today. Yeah. So if, if I was to just kind of maybe describe, I like to think of myself as someone who's really passionate about innovation. So innovator is at the core of who I am, but I've realized that I also have this aspect of really adding more kind of science to that, to the process of innovation, as well as, um, you know, kind of the creative artistic aspect to it. And you see this, I've found myself gravitating towards certain profiles of innovators, you know, artists and creators, as well as scientists. And it's just a bit of mix of all. And that's what I'm hoping to kind of further nurture and use as a platform for, you know, enabling the things that I like to see in the world. And that feeds into that kind of the futurist, this almost an obsession with the future that I have that I'm trying to kind of manifest in the work that I'm doing, even on the startup side, you know, bringing ideas from an idea to a reality in the world. And then just touch upon a little bit about your background and your journey. So where did it all start? Yeah, my background, I grew up in Iran, went to college for petroleum engineering. I moved to US in 2008 to kind of pursue further education, petroleum engineering. I did that and got my first job in oil and gas. That's when I moved to Houston, which is kind of the you know center of gravity for the energy industry and worked in one of the bigger companies in oil and gas. And after a while realized, you know, that entrepreneur aspect of myself and that wanted to Kind of more fast-paced, more uh, control in the process, and uh, decided to join a startup to see how that's like being at a startup and kind of learning the process a bit more. And once I did that, I felt okay. I'm I'm ready now to take the steps to do something of my own. And you know that was back in 2016, 17. Kind of those thoughts and partnered up with my co-founder now Tara, who's also my sister which we'll talk more about to start some beta. So yeah, since then we've been now at that for about seven years. Nice. And what was that pivotal moment for you to decide to start some beta? What did that process or conversation look like with your sister? Like, was there a key moment or a gap you saw in the market where you're like, okay, we need to do something about this? Yeah, I think people like to really make that to be this kind of glorious aha moment. It wasn't like that for us at all. It was more of a systemic approach to understanding the landscape of the market and keeping an open mind to opportunities. And the opportunity came in this kind of gray fuzzy area between biotech and energy and heavy industries where it's really less explored but I've, I've gotten to learn more about that fuzzy area through the previous startup, which is a company where we commercialize DNA sequencing in the oil and gas industry. 
looking at DNA of microbes in the oil and water and rock. And we're building this kind of a 23andMe type maps where you could look at a sample and be able to say, this is from you know the Permian Basin, this is a specific formation. And because our main investor at that company was Illumina, which is a really big DNA sequencing company, I learned from them about biotech. And I, I realized the potential for biotech. And when I started talking with Tara, you know, she comes from biotech. Like she has two PhDs, two postdocs in biotech, synthetic biology, biochemistry. So we started just to kind of sharing ideas and, uh, you know, realize, okay, if we were to do something together, what would be the range of ideas where this could apply to? And it was a bit of a unexpected uh, idea because, you know, I'm going to drilling rigs in Midlands. She's working at the Texas Heart Institute on like tissue engineering and stem cell programming. But that's precisely where we saw the, the connection. It's like if, if we further explore that gray area of interdisciplinary sciences and deep tech, and what, what that could enable. So we started off, we didn't have all the answers at the time, but it's, as we could get into it, for me, it's about the process. It's more about the process than that. What is the exact initial idea to start with? So mm-hmm. yeah, that was the initiation. Hey, myself personally, I would love to start something with my brother one day. I've got a younger brother and I think, you know, if we did something together, it would be really good because we have the same kind of mindset, but, you know, externally you hear those comments about things not working out with family members, but they tend to come from people who don't work with their family members anyway. So it's nice to hear that you've got a successful relationship with your sister and you kind of separate the boundaries of who does what in the organization. So how did you come up with the name Sambia? What does it mean? Yeah, so the kind of backstory of that is, you know, when Tara moved to US and she was doing research at Tulane University, she had all this realization and all these really scientific ideas that were just really unique and in some ways really refreshing. So uh, to the point that it was almost like, wow, like I have all this stuff in my head and it's all too much, you know? So I encouraged her to say, you know, you should consider just writing a book for uh, one of the technical publications to share this knowledge that you have with the world. And also as a way to have that peace of mind that, okay, it's not just in my head, it's recorded, it's published, you know, and uh, just move on, right? So she ended up doing that. And that became a Springer book that is published now. And the book is about how basically... We as humans are really good at converting mass to energy. Let's say we, we burn wood, right, to, to produce heat. But we know very little about how to convert energy to mass. Whereas we have relativity of energy and mass, you know, with Einstein, and that's more about the physical systems. What Tara was trying to explain was that in biological systems, living things, you have energy and mass, but you have this third element that she calls code or information that is embedded in the mass that also has an energy state. And the best example of that is when you think about the DNA, because DNA is an actual molecule. 
but it also is information. But it's not like cyber information where you have zero and one that don't have a physical representation. In nature, they do, you know? And so she was trying to explain what is the relationship and how do you have this transformation of energy and mass, you know, and information to each other in physical and, and living systems. And so the book goes in through the details of that from Einstein's work, from Schrodinger's work in the state and physicists trying to learn more about nature and biology, you know, biologists trying to explain what they see based off of thermodynamics and physics. It's a very multidisciplinary book. And that book actually was rejected by pretty much most of the publishers that we sent it to because they would send it to, they would read the proposal and they would send it to like, okay, this seems like chemistry. They send it to the chemistry editor and they were like, I understand the chemistry chapters. I don't, I'm not qualified to comment on this like biology and physics chapters. So that therefore we're going to reject it. The same thing would happen when they were sending to the physics editor or just the biology, uh, just by their limitation. So Springer actually said, this seems like a good fit for our complexity group where they actually put groups of editors together for newer topics. And they, they saw the connection for this like new way of thinking about uh, the topic. So they ended up publishing it. All that to say, the name of the company, the CEM is Code, Energy, and Mass. Off of that relativity of code, energy, and mass that she discusses in the book. And Vita is like life in Latin. So the idea was, how could we as humans learn how to convert different types of energy and mass as input to other types of energy and mass as outputs? So for example, the work that we do for CO2 utilization is one aspect of that. If you use photosynthesis and use light as a source of energy, that's another aspect of that. And generally, how can humans get closer to building systems that are like what it is in nature, whether if it's plants, different ecosystems that could use different kinds of energy, you know, is this the time? that they could make that jump. Because if you think about the systems that humans built, it's like millions of years behind as far as technology when you compare it to nature, right? Yes. I want to touch upon some of the biggest challenges or pain points that you're facing or have faced, because I know a lot of startups have those moments, right? Where maybe they can't make payroll or they're close to running out of money. Can you talk through any of those? situations and some of the learnings you gain from them? Yeah, I mean, we've had our own fair share of challenges, some of the ones that you mentioned and more. It's just part of the journey, you know? It's the ups and downs, the, the highs are really high, the lows could be low. We've gone through cycles. For example, if you've seen last year, the fundraising environment has not been great. And if you're a deep tech startup, in the energy transition space, which is a bit of a newer category, you know, investors are still adjusting to this kind of longer cycles for technology development to start to building out the plants to build the first of a kind. It's a big jump. So value of death has become kind of a, a bigger journey, you know, for deep tech startups. And as you go through that, you're going to face, we have faced 
fundraising challenges, really managing the finances along the way. You end up hiring some people that it doesn't work out, you know, and then you have to have the conversation and readjust and maintain the morale of the team throughout the process. And at the end of the day, the reason that people still do this is because they believe in the mission and the vision and that, you know, there's something that needs to exist in the world that doesn't today. And we have a chance making that a reality. So that is really what pushes you through the, the challenges. And so, and a lot of learnings too. I mean, I haven't been a CEO of a company before. My, my sister hasn't been like a chief science officer of a growing startup before. And it's just learning on the job as you go. And the best thing we could do is just to make sure that the, the team that we're building is the best that it could be. And a mix of kind of really young energy as well as, you know, experience and someone who's actually been there, done that, but not in a way of forcing this is also the only way to do it and keep an open mind to different approaches, uh, you know, that we could test out and see what works for us because the environment changes, the nuances of the industry changes. So that mindset of innovation is, is kind of core to going through those challenges. Yeah. So you touched on mission and vision and that's what can really hold the team together. So what is your mission and vision? For the company. Yeah. So the vision is basically to bring biosolutions to energy industry and heavy industries in general. And we truly, I truly believe that this is the time where traditional heavy industry kind of oil and gas mining should start to see industrial biotech as a much bigger tool in their tool set that they could leverage because the cost has come down. Some of the early applications have become more obvious, you know, and in terms of the mission, I mean, really what we're trying to build towards is a, is a future where you have companies that they don't introduce themselves as we're an oil and gas company or we're a mining company or we're a petrochemical company. They would just see themselves as we're a natural resource company. Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, all these companies have this relationship with nature. That's where they get their feeder stock, the minerals, right? And then they do the transformation to the end product. But right now they're focused on the, the act of like what they do as opposed to the bigger picture of what they're trying to accomplish. And that's quite limiting. You've seen the movement in that direction, anything from companies not calling themselves, you know, it's that oil you know, getting the oil out of the name or some that, you know, instead of saying shell oil, just say shell energy instead of oil. So what I'm saying is kind of the next extension of that is going to be shell natural resources, BP natural resources. And then the question is, who could do that, but also figure out how to minimize the carbon footprint and the environmental impact footprint of their overall process. And we see industrial biotech as the engine that could enable that. And so everything that we're doing is to show people that this, this is possible now, you know, and, and making them aware of this aspect that has become possible because they don't know. Right. So it's not that, uh, you know, we're smarter than anybody. It's just like, we're saying, this is possible now. So it's a bit of a communication 
to start to build in that into how they think about the strategy built in towards the future. And for Samvita itself to be a player in that space. A lot of times people like to think about, you know, for example, what would Exxon Mobil look like in 2050, you know? And if you say, well, 2050 is quite, you know, ways out. And who's to say Exxon Mobil is going to be around by then? I mean, it's a, it's a long time to, to thrive or to, to not thrive. And you look at SpaceX, you look at Tesla, both about 20 years old. Companies of that kind of impact, just 20 years old. So that gets me thinking that, okay, by 2050, you can have a whole new generation of companies that have different business models, that have different suite of technologies that they use. And who knows, maybe some of those companies haven't even started yet. Maybe they will start two years from now and, and grow into that massive impact by 2050. So this is kind of what I was talking about, about the obsession about the future and, and thinking about the possibilities and kind of building back. And for Sambita, we're making a bet on being a natural resource company of the future and using industry of biotech as the engine. So that's definitely an interesting way of thinking about it. I've not really thought of, you know, everyone should be using the term natural resource company or moving in that direction. I think everyone's just segregating, you know, oil and gas and the different things they work on. But at the end of the day, like you mentioned, it's all <laughs> coming from the ground or coming from nature. I saw on your website, you have a pretty like audacious goal of removing 250 million tons of CO2 from the atmosphere per year by 2050. How are you planning on achieving this goal? Yeah, so that's just building off of the projects that we're doing, you know, because a lot of times we, we capture two kinds of CO2. Some could be from what is called point source. If it's from the fluid stack of a you know refinery, petrochemical plant, or any kind of other facility that is emitting that CO2, power plants, for example. And then there's the direct air capture that is a bit of a newer category, but some of our partners like Oxy, huge players in that space. And so that exercise was really going through, okay, if each of the plants that we build is able to, you know, utilize say 300,000 tons of CO2 per year, and then we kind of build that workflow to see, okay, how many of these can be actually built by then? And what does that add up to? So that the number that you see, I would say more of a conservative estimation of that. And I mean, apart from that, there is a lot of CO2 that could be avoided through our work as well, which is not counted in that number. And also I would say, you know, just in the past few years, I would say there is a, a bit of an over-indexing on just quantifying the carbon footprint. My, my worry is that that is kind of moving the attention a little bit away from environmental footprint, which is really harder to measure because it's not just one thing. You know, water use, land use, fertilizer use, because if people don't want to use as much hydrocarbons as feedstock, then then what is the feedstock? Well, if it's biomass, if it's you know more sugar from sugarcane, from corn, different sources, those also come with sort of an environmental penalty. You know, and if you want to use less oil, it means we need a lot more of those things. And so my hope is that we all gain more maturity in the next 
kind of years and decades in being able to have more of a holistic score or understanding that is not just limited to, you know, just the CO2 equivalent as the main metric. So within Samvita, that's a big, big part of the vision. And everything that we do is to, of course, remove, you know, more CO2 and carbon footprint, but also really focus on overall environmental footprint as well. And you've got three main business lines, right? Endless biomining, gold, hydrogen, PCO2 biomanufacturing. Can you tell us a little bit about those three business lines? Yeah, I mean, we could talk hours about each, but I'll just give you the the one one sentence version of each. So, you know, Samvita is a platform, and the platform is industrial biotech for energy transition. So that is great, but then that has to translate into applications, right? That we could actually, you know, boil down and, and build out plants. So the three that you mentioned are those realized applications. The Eco2, you know, the economical, ecological CO2 conversion is our platform. Basically, we've optimized and engineered these microbes that could eat CO2 and other sources of waste, and they grow. And their body, their cell contains, you know, 40 to 60% of what's like lipids or oil, which is quite similar to soybean oil. And if you know, you know, a bit more about soybean oil, it has a lot of use cases in industries. One of those main use cases is to produce sustainable aviation fuel. And so for that Eco2 business line, that's a huge focus. That's that's where and why we have the partnership with United Airlines to supply this. And, and going back to what I was saying earlier is, you know, the world is going to need a lot more soybean oil if you are to produce the amount of sustainable aviation fuel that we need. But that comes with the limitations of agriculture and all, all, the, all that. So this is our way of actually producing the same end product, but in a lab. In a, in a facility that we control is not limited to the environmental parameters. So that's eco two. Then we have endolith biomining. And so that's where we have optimized and engineered microbes that could have use in two metals of focus. First one is copper. And so this is for bioleaching of copper. If you know a bit about the mining, what they do is, you know, when they remove all the, the ore in the copper mine, they stack them up on a heap. And then from the top, you spray uh, sulfuric acid, typically, to separate out the, the copper from the ore. And there's this other practice called bioleaching, where they actually spray the microbes. And the microbes do the same reaction and separate the copper. And today, about 15 to 20% of the world copper is made using bioleaching. So microbes are already used in the mining industry extensively. What we're doing is working with big mining companies to better optimize those microbes to maintain their recovery and make sure that they are separating as much of the metal as possible. And this is important because similar to oil and gas, a lot of the low hanging fruits is already picked. So you have just very low grade ore. So it is more important to, to maintain economical viability of the projects. And one way to do it is by having better recovery, right? Uh, so that's copper. And then we have a program for lithium. And this is where we have a microbial system for extraction of lithium from lithium clay. 
which is different than brine. In the U.S., we have this kind of a clay belt that goes through several states from Nevada to you know, Arizona, New Mexico, down to Mexico. And we have this new method of separating clay from lithium from lithium clay. And these microbes are quite selective just to lithium, and they leave behind a lot of the impurities like calcium and sodium. So it's just easier to, to post-process. So that's the biomining. And then just to close the loop on gold hydrogen, it's a completely different way of producing hydrogen where we go to depleted oil and gas reservoirs. And this is for, not for shale, this is more for a conventional oil and gas where you have porosity permeability in the subsurface. And as you may know, a lot of these assets, you know, we're never able to produce 100% of what is there, right? So maybe we'll, we extract 30 to 50%. So you still have a lot left. And we deploy this package of microbes and nutrients and those microbes basically eat the oil and produce hydrogen and CO2. The hydrogen we produce, the CO2 we re-inject. And so that's what they call gold hydrogen. We could produce that at the cost of less than a dollar per kg at a kind of a carbon footprint similar to green hydrogen. And the commercial metric is to be able to produce one ton per day per well. So you could think of it as subsurface biomanufacturing of hydrogen as a way for, for us not to be limited just to, you know, there's hydrocarbons here, let's go find it and produce it. But to say, what if we could actually turn that reservoir into a bioreactor and actually produce the things that we need today and in the future? And if it's not hydrocarbons, well, maybe if it's hydrogen, maybe it's ethylene, maybe it's other compounds. So it's a bit of a, you know, subsurface biorefineries concept is starting with hydrogen as that, you know, starting product. Yeah, I'm really interested in the hydrogen business line because I've heard of gray hydrogen, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen. I know there's more colors appearing all the time, but I've never heard of gold hydrogen before. It was only when I started researching about what Semvita does that I came across gold hydrogen. So was this a term coined? by yourself? And if it was, why did you come up with the name gold? Is it because you're Iranian and you like gold or what's the reason <laughs> behind that? Well, I'm Iranian, not from the UAE, right? <laughs> but the way we came up with the name was really, there's a lot of legacy in oil and gas. And if you think about the hydrocarbon era, oil used to be kind of the black gold, right? And the concept here is, okay, well, now, hydrogen could be the next subsurface gold, basically, that still uses oil as a feeder stock, but without the emission, you know? So gold hydrogen was born that way. And fundamentally is, going back to what I was saying earlier, is about seeing basically the hydrocarbon in the subsurface, not as oil or fossil fuels, but as a natural subsurface feeder stock that through the use of microbes we could have access to, to then produce what we want, which in this case is hydrogen. Yeah. Because I know in the hydrogen industry, some of the challenges around obviously supply, transportation, and the cost of hydrogen at the moment is quite high. And in order for that market to pick up and for people to transition to hydrogen, they need the price to be 
at parity with gasoline or even lower. So until that happens, you know, it's hard to tell truck drivers or car manufacturers to really start building cars and it's hard for utilization and adoption from customers. So yeah, when you say you can produce it at less than a dollar a kilogram, I think that's the sort of thing that industry needs in order for that market to take off. You're exactly right. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's more exciting for a company to announce a big green hydrogen project than to announce, you know, we're retrofitting, say, a refinery to do X, or that we're reinventing our subsurface reservoirs to do X, you know. But the reason that this kind of a cost benefit is there is because we're reinventing this infrastructure that is already there. But a lot of times when people think about infrastructure, they're thinking about surface. They're not thinking about subsurface. But fundamentally, what you're doing with the ENP, you know, oil and gas business is you're creating these facilities in the subsurface and the drilling, everything is to have access to that container that has the oil. So it's kind of not efficient just to do all of that, just to get the 20, 30% of the hydrocarbons they could recover, leave, you know, 50 to 80% of the feeder stock in the subsurface and just leave to go start over again. And you think about what is really the fundamental reason that has allowed SpaceX to be as innovative as they are and to really change the cost curve for space exploration is because they figured out how to reuse the rockets and not have to just use it one time and just have to build another one. So it's the same concept here. If we've done this once and understand the subsurface reservoir and all these properties, why not then turn it into a subsurface biomanufacturing facility? if we have the tools to do so through the use of microbes and the use of, you know, petroleum microbiology uh, understanding of the reservoir. So that's kind of the vision for that. And I also agree with you in terms of use cases. In our own work, we do a lot of homework around where is it that we have the right infrastructure in the subsurface in terms of the, you know, reservoir temperature, pressure, permeability, salinity, all of that stuff. But also we have to think about, well, what happens to the hydrogen once we produce it? And so like natural gas blending is a natural fit that is pretty easy to implement compared to some of the other options. We've also brought partners that want to take that offtake, whether if it's through ammonia conversion, whether if it's through just like transportation, which is hydrogen trucks, like chart industries, for example, invested in this project for that reason, because that is what they do. And for our company, we kind of had to take a step back and see, we really want to focus on our strength, which is making sure microbes do what they're supposed to do. And then a lot of the other aspects that are already done in adjacent industries for different use cases, just to leverage collaboration and partnerships for, for bringing the vision together. So, but yeah, happy to talk more about hydrogen. I'm sure we both have a lot of opinions and ideas about that. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about mining and you talked about lithium and I want to talk about that a little bit because I think there's this massive push towards electric vehicles and obviously for the batteries, you need 
lithium and people don't really talk about the CO2 emissions and the impact to the environment it has for mining lithium. So will the processes that you're working on reduce the CO2 emissions in that space and actually make electric vehicles like an even more environmentally friendly version? Because people seem to think that if they're driving a Tesla, they're being environmentally friendly, but they don't really think about where their energy is coming from, right? If you're still burning fossil fuels, you're not really helping the environment unless you have solar panels on your roof and you're charging your car at home. But then there's the end-to-end life cycle of the vehicle all the way from production to consumption. I think sometimes that process is hidden from the consumers. It would be good to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, as you know, there's like layers and layers of in-depth analysis and information that goes into how sustainability should be viewed. And I think just in the past few years, there's been even more education for also the general public to really realize that any kind of energy source is going to have with is going to come with advantages and disadvantages. And none of these come without any penalty, you know, and for mining, that took a while to realize. And that environmental penalty, there is also a lot of geopolitical and social risk that is associated with mining. For something like lithium, it's it's a little bit different. There's the logistical issues with the how much of the processing happens in China and in the US right now, for example, that's viewed as a issue of national security, the, the supply of critical minerals to be able to enable the you know energy transition vision that US has. For some others, it's more of a social issue. Like if you think about cobalt and you know the Republic of Congo and, and the way those the metals are mined, but there's this bit of you know if it's not in my backyard, it's fine. But if it's here, we want to apply these other sets of principles. And I think we're all just learning more about how connected everything is. And we should think really holistically about these things and educate everyone about what goes into their decisions and not make it into this like very high level superficial. If you drive an electric car, you're a good person. If you don't, you're a bad person type of thing. So what we tried to do was again, to give the mining industry more more tools in their toolbox in trying to, on one hand, be more efficient. That's always number one. Be more efficient in, in what they're doing. And that a lot of times translates into lowering the cost compared to the status quo that they are doing. And if you could do that and have additional benefits in terms of lowering the carbon footprint and the environmental footprint, then of course, like, why not do that? Let's do more of that. And I've found as someone who's actually worked in the industry, that is always the best way to approach the problem as opposed to trying to sell something just because of the environmental value of it. The challenge is, if you think about the mining industry compared to the oil and gas industry, oil and gas industry is being asked to produce less, to not explore new assets, and to reduce the environmental carbon footprint at the same time. Mining industry is being asked to reduce their environmental carbon footprint, but they're also being asked to 
increase their output by like 10 times, 100 times across the next few decades. So it's a really big, big challenge to increase production and also maintain your footprint. And that's really where innovation comes into play. One quick thing, data point that I'll mention is when you look at, say, a bioleaching operation, where the status quo being the leaching, where they use acids like sulfuric acid, typically, you know, 30 to 40% of the capex of the building out the operation is to build the, the sulfur, you know, sulfuric acid plant just to supply enough acid to run the operation. So that's already like a massive part of the whole endeavor is to set that up, you know, and then you have to deal with it for the post-processing. In uh, other cases, it leads to what is called acid mine drainage, where you have this pond of like pH 2, 3 water that is usually also next to some town. Once in a while, these end up in the news because they find their way to the aquifer and start to cause other issues. So that's an example of what I was saying earlier, that sometimes there's a lot of focus on the carbon footprint, but the environmental footprint could be even more detrimental and it's just definitely not to be ignored. And we have to find a way to to be able to do this in a apple to apple comparison. So we talked a little bit about mining industry. I want to switch towards the oil and gas industry now. What do you say to those people that say the oil and gas industry needs to go away? Because it seems like a lot of people are misinformed about what the oil and gas industry actually does for society. I think the focus should be more about making the extraction and the process more sustainable. But I think people are misinformed thinking that, yeah, you need to just shut it down and move away from oil and gas, but don't necessarily understand all the use cases of oil and gas and may not understand that this is a transition and it takes time and we can't live without it. Like if we shut down oil and gas, you know, you'll be having cold homes over your winters and <laughs> you may not even have clothes or have tarmac for your roads. So there's so many use cases, but those people just see the oil and gas industry as being evil. Well, I think we need the resources. It's supply and demand, right? And the focus should be on sustainability rather than stopping it altogether. Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's one of those things that they're a category of people who think this is like cigarettes or tobacco. It's like, I don't understand. Why can't we just stop smoking? <laughs> Given all the bad side effects, you know? Because it's not the same. Oil and gas is not like a nice to have luxury. It's fundamental to the economical viability that exists today, that enables the lives that we have today. And it is fair to say, okay, we've come this far with oil and gas. Now let's take a step back and think through diversifying the energy sources towards the future. But that's where we got to be careful because it is going to be a transition. I mean, we could do it more rapidly, but a lot of people are going to suffer in the process. And we don't have this common understanding. If you're talking about someone who sits in developed country, 
making those decisions compared to other countries that are still trying to move one step up from not having to burn wood to make their food, you know? And, and who are we to decide about what they should or should not use, you know, for their economical prosperity to enjoy a bit of what we have, you know? So it's a very complex problem. That's why you have, you know, COP28 coming up and, and the previous ones as a, as a hope for the world leaders to come together and see, okay, what framework can be introduced that allows economical prosperity in certain regions while demanding others to slow down a little bit or, or pay more price to develop the diversified resources and then try to match these in a way that we all move towards sustainability in a way that we could manage the emission profile that we have overall. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough challenge. And, uh, you know, a lot of it just comes down to as far as the education across the board. In my own work, I talk with, I go to oil and gas conferences, I also go to conferences that are more attended by environmentalists. I talk to, you know, advocates for climate justice because I want to understand the frame of uh, mind, you know, and I found is the solution is not also kind of try to sit someone down. It's like, no, you don't understand the engineering. Let me explain to you this, this, this. Uh, it's, it's a matter of uh, how people feel about the issue. And once they also realize that, you know, uh, this, this perception that people have of oil and gas industry, and it's just some kind of capital is just doing stuff and just not caring about the environment is really not true, but, uh, we just need to ingrain these industries a bit more as it's happening right now. Like even when I was pitching for our Series A to VCs out of California and New York, they're like, oh, you're based in Houston. And that was not viewed as like a positive thing. I could, I could feel like they would have rathered to hear that we're based in California, you know. But more recently, when I was pitching for our Series B, they actually like the fact that we're based in Houston because it meant that we're closer to those who are actually building the system so that engineering knowledge and building the systems is there more. So that's kind of already happening, the, the communication across the spectrum. I think over time, maybe there hasn't been that much of a focus from the oil and gas companies on sustainability because of you yeah. know not having those cost pressures like we do now. So I think mm -hmm. before, when, when you have massive budgets, you can find the oil and gas natural resources in not necessarily the most efficient way. And I think now that, especially with cost pressures, we're trying to do things more efficiently and also reduce our emissions. But I also see oil and gas companies maybe not necessarily want to be that sustainable because there's a cost associated with that as well. So why should we move towards these sustainable solutions if they don't make us any money? Like, why would we reduce our profit margins for more sustainable solutions? What are your thoughts on that? Because I know with what you're trying to do is spread the message that, yeah, but you can do this in a cheaper way and be sustainable at the same time. And it's not a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a question of short-term versus long-term. 
and especially for public companies, how they're treated by Wall Street also dictates like what decisions they could or could not make. There was a bit of a kind of a momentum built around incorporating ESG as a bigger metric. I feel that it's kind of a slowed down a bit since two, three years ago. It's also a question of timing, you know, like BP tried to be beyond petroleum, like 15, 20 years ago, like 10, 15 years ago. And it was just the timing was not there. So it didn't, that wasn't rewarded as an, uh, you know, kind of a strategy. And this time around, you know, companies have these 2050 goals and they're building towards that. The challenge is how to maintain the core business, right? And provide enough revenue to be able to fund what your future is going to be. It's kind of a classic innovator's dilemma if, if, you, if you read that, that principle. And it requires you in some ways cannibalizing some of the existing business to reinvent yourself into what your future is going to be because otherwise our, others are going to do it for you. It's the same you know, yellow cab and Uber story, right? But the, you know, the companies that are doing this right they have this kind of holistic view in their strategy in how could we leverage the expertise that we have and the infrastructure that we have, just use it in a different way. Just think about if a company doesn't see themselves as just oil and gas, right? But if they say we're a natural resource company, we used to produce hydrocarbons, now we're using the same assets to produce hydrogen. And we're dealing with the CO2, we're capturing that, we're sequestering that. It's the same skill sets that is used. It's just a different way of using the skill sets and the infrastructure. So those are my favorite type of companies that are thinking that way, as opposed to let's go and invest. If you have a group of petroleum engineers and geologists, some their approach is let's teach these people about wind turbines and electrolyzers for green hydrogen. Let's go build those kind of facilities. And they're moving away from their core expertise. I don't think that's a good strategy, you know, but it's, it's hard being a public company. I could, you know, understand it's, these guys are in a really tough position. And some of these executives, they're used to making this key strategic shifts and decisions across, you know, span of five years, 10 years to have enough data. Now they have to make the same decisions across six months, one year, you know, and um, it's not easy. You mentioned these companies have these 2050 goals. Do you think they will reach their goals with the way they're making their decisions right now or some of the initiatives they're working on? Do you think they're going to be way off when we get to 2050 if they continue as they are today? I think some some will, some won't, you know. And the when this kind of trend started, a common issue was like the team that is there, 2050, is not going to be any of these these people. So, I mean, why should they really care? Like they could promise anything, you know. Is this they won't f- face the the results, right? And that drove this kind of momentum around. Okay, well, let's break that down. What is then 2025 goal, what is 2030 goal, and in in more digestible steps towards the future. But, you know, it's uh, in kind of foresight, that's the third horizon, like, you know, five years, 15 years, 
20, 25 years. And it's going to depend on a lot of other parameters. It's not just about a strategy of the company is something dynamic. It would depend on environmental, geopolitical demand for energy, all of that. And their projections for what that is going to be in 2030, 2040, 2050. But those projections also use a lot of assumptions. So I expect that this is going to be something as it should be that needs to be updated like on a, you know, every few years. And so just to see, okay, what is really the the target? And just kind of in my own work, I, I do follow how companies are tracking and you're going to have some wild cards also in, in the play. Like you have new companies coming in that were not even in the books to, to have an impact. You know, if you think about Again, if you were to try to do this for the uh, automobile industry 30 years ago, you didn't have Tesla in the books. And look now, I mean, it's, it's really hard, right? But it's it's really exciting to think about. And the fact that people are thinking about 2050 and try to set these goals as aspirational and for others, more tangible visions. It's something that you know is attracting a lot of young, talented people who want to make a difference to be part of it because those are going to be the ones who are still, you know, in the industry by 2050. Yeah. So I actually want to move on to young, talented people because I think that's the core thing to make a business successful and make the most impact. So just talking about some of your leadership styles and the people you're hiring, how are you building a high-performing team to work towards the vision that you have in Zenvita? Yeah, so we have a very multidisciplinary team. I would say out of everything we've done, I'm the most proud of the team that we built. Because for us as a deep science and technology company, that's really core to everything that we do is through the team and what they bring to the table. So we spent a lot of time in terms of understanding the profile of the scientists, engineers, you know, business people that would do well at Sambita that are mission-minded. So we have specific core values that they look for. This being mission-minded is one. Being pioneering and persistent is another one. You have to be pioneering because we do a lot of things that are first time that someone is trying. They should find that exciting, not just intimidating. And that's pioneering. And also they have to be persistent because it's accepted that you're going to run through failures. So if you're not persistent, you're going to have a hard time. You have to also be caring and candid in the process to grow because you come in here with a certain state, but then there's a lot of growth that happens and then to be responsible for results. And this is a combination of things that in, in our view is a good starting point for kind of finding those A players, or those with really high potential that could thrive within the Samvita system, I would say. But just on your personal development and some of the skills you have, how did you identify what you're good at and how did you identify some of the areas you need to develop? Like you mentioned earlier, you know, it's the first time you're becoming a CEO. So what did you identify as your strengths and development areas? Because I know a lot of people listening to this, maybe trying to find their path or navigate their path for their future career. So can you Talk about that a little bit. Man, that's a lot of self-discovery, a lot of asking yourself the difficult questions, a lot of just going away and just thinking 
you know, which is simple, but it's hard to find the time these days to do that. And being honest with yourself, you know, for me, also the question was like, what kind of CEO do you want to be in the context of what I already uh, kind of learned about myself and what I said earlier about the uh, innovator with the science element and with the creativity element and how that helps me do what I could do to move the needle inside the company. And that brought more clarity for me compared to say me wanting to become like really the expert in like finances, you know, or, or the expert in technology. And so the clarity was that, okay, the, the way I could use those skills is to really double down on my strengths and kind of the, the, the messaging, the, the creativity aspect in our marketing, you know, and really the rest is learning about people so that I could hire the best when it comes to the, the CFO, the chief technology officer, and have that person be, you know, someone that they do, they do see that as their being and their mission and something that they're really good at. And if you could accomplish that, then we're in good hands, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, the job of the CEO is to find people that are better than you in those functions and just remove roadblocks, just remove ro roadblocks on a daily basis so that they could reach their full potential. And that feeds back into the overall benefit of the company. And of course, you have to have that messaging and communication part to be able to fund the company so that you are able to attract the best and provide fuel for the bus to keep going, right? I want to know more about what's next for Semvita. Let's say in 20 years time, you look back at Semvita's legacy, what is the one change or impact that you would want to be most remembered for? Well, I like to kind of, and, and we do talk about that in those terms inside the company too, and we call it the legacy, you know, what is, what is really the legacy? And I tell our team members, you know, when we're 85 or if we're catching up, what would be the thing that you mentioned as, as your legacy in Samvita? And we go in through kind of these tangible examples. For example, we have this bridge in Houston that passes through this ship channel and you see all the petrochemical plants and it's like, well... If we could one day cross the bridge and see, you know, green biorefineries that don't have emissions, we could actually do that. Like that could be our legacy, you know, and working towards those. So as a whole for Samvita, what I would love and hope for us to accomplish is to be able to bring industry biotech to the industry in ways that some are kind of obvious applications, some are not today, but to be the company that showed people that this is possible and, and grown that into kind of this new category of industrials where it should not be separated too much from nature, but it's actually in tune with nature. And it allows companies and humans to live in harmony with the environment through the use of a better understanding of microbes as just like small agents that are in nature that now we have access to and we could optimize and control to do things like gold hydrogen, like bioextraction of minerals, you know, and biomanufacturing. Yeah, that's an incredible legacy. I want to move towards like a quick fire round where I'm going to ask you loads of questions and if you could answer in like 30 seconds or less, 
That'll be great. So the first right. one is, it just three words. How would you describe your entrepreneurial journey? Interesting, challenging, rewarding. Nice. Which book have you recently read that you recommend to every entrepreneur? More recently, it's been The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. Who's one person living or deceased who continues to inspire you in your work? I would say Cus D'Amato is a boxing coach for Mike Tyson. Very unique approach to life and to professionalism. So yeah, Cus D'Amato. What's one piece of tech or app you simply can't live without? Right now, it's this the app that I use for my kid just to kind of track how he's doing and sleeping schedule, stuff like that. <laughs> so that changes throughout time right now is that. Name one personal habit you've adopted in your daily life to be more environmentally friendly. Yeah, for me, it's just using less, consuming less. I think this fundamentally is probably going to have more impact. Just less things, you know, because things cost carbon and environmental footprint to make. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given in just one sentence? It came from an entrepreneur that took me one year to get a meeting with, and I was hoping him to spill the beans about his success, and he didn't. We just talked for an hour about different things, and then right before he hung, he already said bye, but right before he hung up, he just said, you know, believe in yourself and follow your passion. And I was like, well, there it is. And it's simple. You know, if you do something you're passionate about and you believe in yourself, you'll be fine. Who has been your most important professional mentor? It's a collection of different people like Customato that I mentioned. Rick Rubin has been a big influence and there's a specific entrepreneurs that I follow, you know, so it's a mix. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in their career? I would just say go through the process of self-discovery to really understand what you're good at. There's tests for this that looks at you as from outside and, and gives you that insight. So that, that's been big. And, and then that feeds into really self-awareness and working with the people who've already been there, have done that to provide the roadmap because nothing is impossible. It's just, you just have to understand the roadmap and break it down. And that's been at least my approach anyway. So I'll just try to share what my experience has been. If you could go back and give your 18-year-old self advice, what would it be? Probably to just have more empathy. That was part of that the work. I was too focused on just doing what I needed to get done and probably not as empathetic in conversations and you know understanding what other people are going through and be more of help. So I will probably work more on that in those formative years. If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> uh, you know, there's this old Persian story about that. And I think the solution they came up with was either milk or honey. One of these two is like, in, if you were to just do that every, every day, sustainably for years, that could kind of carry you over. So probably, yeah, maybe, maybe just milk with honey and just see how that goes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that one. And I'd like to end the episode with a question. 
what can we all do from today to better serve ourselves and others? I think just to have more empathy, just come from a place of understanding, better listening is probably going to help anybody with anything. And, you know, having the mindset of just making the world a better place and be helpful, be useful in what we do. So combination of those. Uh, do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners? I would love to, you know, I've been listening to your work. I'd love to be a part of this journey and just kind of follow other people's journey and, and be helpful when I can. And for the work that we do, if any of these things are resonating with people in different ways, whether today or three years from now, 10 years from now, we'll love to, you know, stay in touch. I believe things happen for a reason. Connections could come from anywhere. So, you know, part of me being here is to put a message in the universe also for, for those who think the same way or, or have better ideas to connect. Yeah. And work together in whatever capacity it might be. Yeah. But just on that topic, how can people find you or get in touch with you? Yeah, I would say probably the best way is going to be LinkedIn. And it's just uh, probably easiest way. I'm also on Twitter. But yeah, either of those would be just fine. Okay. Yeah, I'll leave all the links in the description. But yeah, thanks a lot for your time. I've really enjoyed this episode. I know for sure our listeners are going to get value from it and i'll be following your journey because i know what you're doing is going to make a massive impact to our world thanks for the invite i enjoyed it and yeah i look forward to engaging more with the platform and yeah hopefully i would love to maybe come back in a few years and yeah, report sure. back on the progress for sure thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode i for sure will be following mojis and samvitas journey towards becoming the natural resource company of the future. My episodes are also on YouTube if you prefer watching the video version. Thanks for listening and I will see you very soon.